Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Which is, of course, um, Yankee food. Well done, chaps. Splendid work. Um, if you're listening <laughs> on February the 15th, 2022, then 80 years ago today, President Roosevelt spoke to the people of Canada. Yours are the achievements of a great nation, he said. They require no praise from me, but they get that praise from me nevertheless. I understate the case when I say that we, in this country, contemplating what you have done and the spirit in which you have done it, are proud to be your neighbors. Also on that day... Um, <laughs> The Japanese won the Battle of Singapore and began an occupation which would last until the 12th of September, 1945. <laughs> so, picking up Canada, I love the, well I love the Roosevelt, the, the patrician Roosevelt. <laughs> this will go down as a day of infamy. <laughs> um, it's kind of sort of what we'd now call sort of slightly mid-Atlantic, wouldn't we? It, yes, yeah, it's sort of, it's so sort of modern. Modulated and partitioned, isn't it? Anyway, uh, hi, James. Well, welcome to Weird Ways Good weekend. Good weekend. Yeah, great. Yeah, good weekend. Yes, I've been doing a lot of reading, um, a, a different oh, and a bit of writing, uh, and working on a a white scout car as well. I've been making a model of that to go with the <laughs> yeah to go with the Lloyd Carrier. Yeah, which is going to be done up in the Inns of Court um, Regiment Regimental Livery, who were part of nice. um, who are the recce a recce unit in um, uh, in Eleventh Armoured, I think, if I remember yeah, rightly. Very good. Well, yeah. Stanley Christopherson was um, Inns of Court before he. Uh, yeah, well, there you go. Before he he left to join the Sherwood Rangers. Join the Sherwood Rangers. Yeah, there we go. Um, uh, anyway, how are you, James? Good weekend. Yeah, it was a bit soggy yesterday. I um I went up to see uh, Marcus was hard at work on the uh, on the Lloyd. On the Lloyd. Uh, he's brilliant. got you know, and he's got one. You know that kind of rusting Hulk, which is what we mm. bought. Mm. Um, well, he's t- he's taken off one of the um. One of the kind of suspension arms, suspension bogies, and underneath yes. it, it's just it's just shiny steel. With really sort of slick of oil on it. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So you can sort of he, he says there's not much to be used from the chassis, but but there's various bits, the differentials and the, and yeah. the axes and all yeah. the rest of it. He thinks are absolutely fine. Really, he's making quite good progress. That's very good. It's got the same bogies as the as the um, it's the Horseman suspension units, isn't it? It's the same right. as the as the carrier, the the, the yeah. standard Bren carrier. I mean, they make you know hundred thousand Bren carriers made, and the twenty two thousand Lloyd carriers. There's an awful lot of these um. Carriers. <laughs> this carriers, these buggies bugging about, aren't there? Well, it also suggests that it was a pretty effective tool, doesn't it? Yep. I mean, you know, you don't build 125,000 of them if they're rubbish and not and not, yeah. not doing what they say on the tin. I mean, I suppose, if, yeah. you know, you wanted to, you know, and I was interested by, by all the different, um, uh, all, all the different roles for these things, a sort of flank reconnaissance as well. Yep. Yeah, which yeah. is I thought was really interesting, and obviously a, a machine gun platform, and you know obviously um, um, ammunition, pounder, and yeah, ammunition, blah, 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 yeah. blah. You know, so there's, a, there's a lot, isn't there? There's a lot going on, really. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so it's really exciting. So he's off. To, he was going to go see Tobin, um, Tobin Jones yesterday. You know, who obviously for for those listeners who don't know, Tobin is our kind of sort of go to person on all British kit, and he's he brings in all the um, all the vehicles and orchestrates yeah. all that for for Warfest. And um, he's he's tickets on very sale now. Completing a Lloyd carrier tickets on sale now, day and full weekend. <laughs> TNC supply. 
Um, but so he's he's off to see him on Friday, and I might go up with him. I'm not sure, right. but I might do just because it'd be quite nice to see what Lloyd Carey looks like. You know, brand new. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but he's making progress, so that's all good. Oh, that's, that's great. Excited. But it Excellent. was a bit soggy up there. It has to be said. And this rained, morning, rained, rained. this morning, because we record this Monday for Tuesday, um, you you announced on Twitter that you're going, you're next, so you've made your mind up about your next book. Because I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna say there's been some, there's been some dithering and prevarication, James. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> I, I know, but I finally gripped the situation. Good. Um, uh, there will be no withdrawals <laughs> and no reversals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now going forward to do the casino, and and your point about kind of sort of constantly kind of starting and then going back and do the backstory is sort of ringing in my ears. So I think I might just say sod it and just do it Salerno to the fall of Rome. Yeah. Sounds and good. then you don't have to do a backstory because I've done it. Yeah, well, you did it because otherwise, it. otherwise, you start in January nineteen forty-four, don't you? And then you go, you know, the reason they're here was because on the eighth yeah, of yeah. September or first of September, or whatever, nineteen forty-three, and, and no. you don't like that, and and I'm no. listening to you. So I'm going, but I'm very keen. If anyone's got any, I'm, I'm, I, I think one of the lessons I suppose from from doing, um, uh, Brothers in Arms was just yeah. that. I mean, it's not like I hadn't realised it before, but it really struck home with me. I think was the value of diaries and letters, yeah, documents that were you know that that um, recount personal experiences, but were written on the day at the time, yeah. Uh, and I and so um it, you know if anyone's got any family diaries or letters or yeah. stories you know or unpublished memoirs or anything like that, then well a, then a comedian I, I know all is. a comedian I know uh, replied already. Pierre Novelli said uh, grandfather was an officer in the Royal Engineers, won the MC there. Can find the citation on the pics of the thing itself if of if of interest, he says. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's all yeah. of interest. It's all of interest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I'm you, sort of I'm doing sort of soft research at the moment. Well, because you need of, to yeah. cast it, don't you? That's how you write your book, don't you, James? You, James, you, you yeah. sort of cast it with sort of 20, 20 yeah. people, you know, who also, are your main yeah. protagonists. Yes, that's the way. And then and then they're your kind of sort of your your so your, your skeleton of is the events and the kind of yep. chronology of events, and then your cast list is is how you kind of build the up the kind of muscle and fat around that skeleton, yeah, and 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 sort of build on it and the human drama of it, yeah. Um, I've been kind of sort of thinking of kind of new ways to write it and different ways, yeah. different approaches and stuff, but but really it's about it's about getting the right cast. I think it's getting about yeah. Um, so anyway, so I've been looking at that. I've been looking on the Imperial Museum. I've been looking at sort of early material that I had because I have I have touched on the fall of Rome in, in yeah. Italy, sorrow. But yeah. I'm going to use completely different people. I'm not going to write the same thing again. Yeah, um, and obviously that was a long time ago, and kind of you know thoughts have changed and stuff. So yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah no, so, so I'm I'm really I'm really pumped for it. I'm, but I'm really, it's going really to be a lot of Alex in there, isn't it? Yeah, a bit of Alex because you Alex. know. For those that those that are new to the podcast, and and again, that there's always someone every weekend who goes, "I've just discovered this. I now have a lot of listening to do." Um, I know we never hear from them again, though. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. They're they're um, they're a, a one listen wonder. <laughs> but but no, but as I said, um, if people are, you know are new to this, um, you are an enormous fan of um, Alexander, aren't you? So uh, yeah, no, I am, and I am actually. I'm, I'm you know some years ago I was commissioned to write the authorized biography mm. of him. Um, so I have still got that kind of hovering in the background. Yeah. Um, and I'm very lucky because I got, because um, Adam Nicholson, who's a, a brilliant, brilliant, superb writer and, and someone I know um, um, a little bit. Uh, I also knew Nigel Nicholson, his father, who, of course, is yeah. the um, son of Harold Nicholson and Vita Sackville West. Yeah. And Nigel Nicholson was out in North Africa and in Italy um, and later wrote a biography of Alexander. 
Oh, really? Uh, which he published, I think, in 1970, so just after Alex died. And he went around interviewing loads and loads and loads of people, most of which, have, and most of his research never, ever found it into the book. Right. And Adam has given me the whole lot. Was he the admirer of Alexander's? Yes, he was. He was. He, he was a critical admirer. Um, but but the book is sort of, it's of its time and it's and it's sort of yeah. short of quite a lot of things. Anyway, there's just an absolute stack of material Great. of interviews with people that knew Alex. Great. That he of people he interviewed that he never really used. Yeah. And I've now got it all. So that that's, that's terrific. terrific, isn't it? And and Alex's sons, Shane and Brian, the current Shane is the current Earl, yeah. um, have also been incredibly helpful. There's huge photo albums yeah, and I've got loads of letters and stuff like that. Um so, uh, so there's quite a lot of material. But but I yeah. didn't have that when I was doing Italy Sorrow. So no. so That'll be interesting, but but how are you getting on with yours? Because you must be you must be nearly done. I'm nearly done. I'm 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 writing about Bradley and the GI Army because if he's the GI General, then who's the GI? Is the question? Yeah. And also, he very much strikes me as the GI General. He's of all the generals. Um, he's he was you know he's a big admirer of Stillwell's. He really thought he really rated Stillwell extremely highly. Bradley. Well, I think Stillwell was an exceptionally good general. He just well, I think Stillwell was a very good. I think Stillwell was a was, was a was a brilliant uh, a brilliant trainer of men. We've talked mm. about that that um, uh, whatever that means when people say that. But yes, he was a brilliant trainer of men. But 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 I think also when he was a young when he was a sort of young guy coming through showed incredible potential and was you know just better at it than everybody else. And mm. so he's got all this, 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 a big sort of bloom of admiration around Steelwell. And especially during the, you know, the massive expansion, for, which, you know, which starts with Marshall's appointment on the 1st of September, 39. And Roosevelt calls him Marshall and Marshall says, you're going to have to, you're going to have to take it unvarnished from me. I'm not going to laugh at your jokes. And, you know, you, and he won't let him call him by his first name and all this sort of right. stuff. You know, he's got to call him General Marshall. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and, and uh, uh, Bradley describes Marshall as austere and prudish. And, uh, you know, but basically he's this sort of Spartan closed off general. But, but you know, you see all these characters emerging during that time in the War Department where they're trying, where they're trying, you know, and the, the war, the Secretary of State for War, the American Secretary of State for War doesn't want to expand the army and they're doing it anyway. And they're sort of siphoning money off from here. And, you know, it's absolutely fascinating. But, but, but I want to know, because I so I'm writing about who the, you know, who's the GI, because if, because Bradley is the GI general in the standard, in the sort of way that he's kind of general issue. He's not got any, he's not got much flair, He's not a big personality. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He makes a virtue of being ordinary. Yeah. He wears his spectacles. He wears, you know, he wear. Then they wear that long mac, and he looks like if he, if he didn't have his helmet on, he'd look like a bloke on his commute. He'd look like someone yeah. on the Staten Island ferry in the rain. You know, it, it, he's very understated, isn't he? And and, it, yeah. and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you yeah. know the the biggest characters of all. You know, Patton's got his look. You know, yeah. MacArthur's got his look. He's got his Field Marshal cap and his yeah. aviator shades and. You know, corn cob yep. pipe. Yeah, you know, so it's a really sort of studied look. Even Alex has got a touch of the dandy about him. Oh, he's a guardsman. He's gonna. It's inevitable. Yeah, yeah. But I know, and he's aristocratic and all the rest of it. Yeah. But but Bradley, you're right. He hasn't. He's he's just. And I. He's just very straight. But he's a but he's a good diplomat. Bradley, but I think he's. But he? I think he's. I think he's so much. You know, the, the kind of general Marshall really wants. Actually, in the end. I think he's so much Marshall's man. And what you read about Marshall, you can apply to, you, I think you can apply, apply an awful lot to Bradley. 
You know, mm, Brad's got really a bit more of the more of the common touch, but they're very, you know, and it's the CCC, um, which is which yeah. is so important. And I think what's so interesting about the CCC is because you've got the bonus marches in thirty two and thirty three. Just explain right? what the CCC is. This is part well, of the well, this is well, Mrs. Roosevelt's um, civilian. New deal. Uh, it, it's a conservation uh, uh, organization called civilian. Con- it's a civilian yeah, conservation conservation corps, corps. And the idea is the idea is it does it does. You know, uh, infrastructure, land, um, dams, forestry, forestry, clearance, uh, fire relief, emergency relief, and all that sort of stuff. It's physical manual labor. You're paid $30 a week and you have to send 25 home. And it's for men between 17 and 25. And then, and then it gets opened up. Well, we'll get, we'll get to why. But basically what happens is the, the, um, the, the American government breaks trust with, with veterans. It's the, such an interesting moment when, when the depression comes. Uh, the Hoover government um, offers soldiers a, tr- a bond, a bonus bond that can be, they're not going to get paid now. They'll be paid in 1945. And I think the choice of the year is sort of deliciously ironic. But basically, if you're a veteran, you're, you're, you're being left <laughs> hang out to dry because the government says it's run out of money. They march on Washington and send, and Patton takes in tanks and cavalry to break up the bonus marcher camp, right? Mm. Under MacArthur's orders. Right, and it and because MacArthur is currently the chief of staff of the army. MacArthur's chief of staff at the time, and and all the and the the veterans all think, oh, here comes the army to show support, and then they tear gas the they tear gas the bonus marcher crowd in Washington, and uh, and set the cavalry on them and force them out of their camp at bayonet bayonet and tear gas point. Right, and you sort of think, you just sort of think, if a government could fuck things up more reliably with. The fathers of the sons it's going to need to recruit in the event of an emergency. This is it. It's yep. it's it's the most. I think. It's, I I, it, it, I mean, it really reminds me. You know, every now and again, you 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 know, you see these echoes in history. The way governments deal with veterans in the short term and don't think about them in the long term. The way, for instance, it, you know, that that the veterans get fobbed off. For now, because we're broke now, and it, and what they don't really, you know, what governments, the governments have always done this, but they create this long-term sort of stink around the, you know, business of being a veteran. They want you to be a soldier, but the last thing they want you, want to, they don't care about you once you've left. And it's really, really fascinating how I think how wrong um, uh, uh, th- this goes for the, and and I think you've got to think of it as the government rather than any president in particular. Anyway. Yeah. There's a bonus march the following year, and Roosevelt says sends Eleanor Roosevelt down, and she sings songs with them, and reassures them that there'll be a place for them in the CCCC. CCC, and they're going to change the entry regulations for the CCC to allow <laughs> veterans in if they're married and all that sort of stuff. And the pay is better than if you're a soldier. And wow, yeah, it, 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 it's twenty five bucks if you're a soldier, it's thirty if you go in the CCC. So, so the but then obviously Roosevelt has no way of organising this thing. So turns to the army to organise it. Amazing. And the army is either like, you know, MacArthur hates it, but thinks, hang on a minute, maybe I can get a sort of permanent reserve out of this. And Congress, that that gets pushed back. So he doesn't get what he wants out of it. But everyone else, Marshall and Bradley, love it. And they think, we'll, we'll teach people leadership. We'll harden people in discipline, that, that they'll be physically um, rewarded by the work. And that happens. And and obviously all of the officers toughens the, them up, toughens them up. But also all the officers have to go through the loads of officers have to go through the CCC and run it. And so as a result, learn how to lead. 
learn how to work in organized systems, learn how to run companies of men, you know, uh, are fit themselves, learn that you've that the best way to do things is to share privations with your men and all that. And basically, after the bonus, I think the disaster of the bonus march in the relationship between the state and the, and the you know, the, the, the soldier class, if you want, there's this, you know, the, the American army gets this extraordinary opportunity to re to re-engage with what a citizen soldier will need. Yep. At just the right time. It's the most extraordinary. And Bradley's thing. at the heart of all this, isn't it? Bradley's at the heart of it. He runs he runs three companies of black um uh, enrollees. You know, yes, and he's and he's very forward thinking, isn't he, about yeah. about, about about the employment of black troops Absolutely, compared to a yeah. lot of others. Yeah. And he says, you know, they've come from dirt poor areas and they've none of them have eaten properly ever. It gets some square meals and sets up bank accounts well, and everything. That's the same principle, isn't it, of, of the First yeah. World War guys in the trenches? Yeah. You know, they're finally getting Ooh. three square meals a day. And, yeah, and but the thing, but what's interesting is, you know, we'd look at the CCC now as this sort of forced labour kind of thing. It's, it's how we'd regard it. But in the New Deal, it was ma- massively popular, sort of ninety-four percent public approval rating and everything. It's the it's a, it's the really interesting sort of link in in the in how that generation of officers who end up running the Second World War, Patton, because Patton's in the other camp who wants to bayonet these guys. And Patton meets, <laughs> Patton meets someone. At, there's a guy who saved Patton's life at the Meuse-Argon, um, uh battle and who's on one of the bonus marches and Patton refuses, blanks him, acts like he doesn't recognise him. The guy comes up and says, I saved your life in the, um, uh, on the battlefield and... Uh, and uh, and come on, you can't be seriously. You can't seriously be doing this to men who who fought alongside you. And Patton just blanks the guy. It goes very well, bad, you know. Goes very badly for Patton. All that, you know. <laughs> well, I think it's fair to say that Patton's a complex personality. <laughs> but anyway, so I have really, loads, the CCC is yeah. But the CCC well, is like I think it's a really really fascinating thing because it's sort of the thing that saves saves. Well, it's a bit the like the Arbeit Dienst without the without. The, <laughs> Without, without the, the uh, without the bayonets, yeah. Well, without the, well, I was going to say without all the kind of sort of you know indoctrination. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same principle, isn't it? It is, yeah. is is sort of get a get a warm up taster for for kind of military life by yeah. working in teams and working under orders and affect you know team leaders and officers and stuff. Yeah. Um, it's a similar sort of thing and get physically fit and all the rest of it. And for young folks, there's not a, there's not a massive difference. It's just sort of obviously the ideology is different, but but yeah. what you are actually doing is is pretty much the same and it's a really good thing. I mean, I, I've loads of the people that I interviewed, loads of the veterans that I interviewed have done it. And I mentioned to you yeah. these two identical twins, Tom and yeah, yeah. Bowles. Um, they both both joined it and, you know, yeah, it was pretty successful. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, most, I, of the people, like, most of the people I, I knew who were in the CCC um, all thought it was great, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, a, fascinating. it's fascinating. And it's sort of, and it's sort of been, you know, obviously the, they wound it down when the war when the war came because they didn't need yeah. it anymore. But but it was the where they you know it's 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 interesting because it because it it for the army they learn the officers learn how to train and are trained in training in an yes. environment in an environment that is necessarily civilian. So yes. then when you then have to conscript people and you have a civilian army, you know a citizen army, it just absolutely. It, but do you, they're like do better you equipped think- for it. Do you think in terms of Bradley, do you, do you think because of, I mean, I suppose that your argument is that because of his experience of the CCC, he understands the odd, the, the, the civilian soldier yeah. in a way that other generals yeah. don't. And that's yeah. why operationally he's so good. So in, in that yeah. way, he's kind of, you know, 
he's similar to Montgomery, isn't he? And he understands yeah. the limitations. You know, yeah. he, he pushes, but he doesn't push too yeah. hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, well, well, yeah. and he's got no First World War experience. That's the other thing. He's, he's, um, you know, in the First World War, he's sent to, he's sent to guard the Mexican border, um, uh, uh, or before America joins the First World War, and then, then he's sent to guard copper mines in Montana or something. A bit, right. a bit bitterly cold posting that he hates. And then the war ends before he goes to fight. So he's, it's it, it, in, yes, he is like Montgomery in that respect, but he's also unlike him in that he hasn't seen the First World War. You know, he's not got that British British Army officer thing of actually having been present at these horrible, at this, at the horrendous slaughter of the First World War. It, it, yeah. he's just re- he just knows about it. He's read about it. And at one point he, in 1919, it looks like he's going to get sent to Vladivostok. Um, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. With an American military mission that then gets cancelled. Wow. Yeah, extraordinary. And he's like, "Thank God for that," because you know I'd only just got married, and it yep. was obviously going to be a, a crappy posting. And it's uh, uh, really, really, he's really. I mean, he wrote two bi- autobiographies. So there's the first one. That's right, the 1951 one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, yeah. with yeah. Chet Hansen, who's yeah, who's yeah. His age and then the, the and then the one he wrote he wrote a lot later, which, where, where he where he with sort Clay of Blair, who's the submarine that's man. Right, that's right. Where he has a proper go at. You know, if you put Mo- in the Kindle, if you put searches for Monty and you get like 500 and it's always like showboat and all that. And the words around Monty are really funny. But I think it's just really, it's really, he's really interesting because I think he's a product of, you know, of, of this, of, of the New Deal, you know. And the yeah. way that the New Deal, the way that the New Deal and the Second World War are glued together in American politics in a way where people think one happens and then the other happens, I think is, is, uh, Something that people maybe need to think about, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Re- well, re- I, I, I'll tell you what. When it when it comes to well, I think it's a really really interesting point. I think when it comes, to, it's interesting. You just mentioned those those two different autobiographies and the, and the different tone and all the rest of it. I mean, the second one was written in nineteen eighty three, so it's quite a long time after the yeah. war. Whereas the first one's written just in the shadow of the war. Obviously, Monty's still alive. Then dies in nineteen seventy seven. So yeah. six, you know, the second one comes out six years after he's died. But I still think the Chet Hansen diary is is the thing to, to yeah. the most important thing to look at. And actually, yeah. it did occur to me that that's that's something we should try and publish in our series yeah. because it's yeah. never been published. My God, and it just said so, and it's and it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and and what you're getting again is what I was going back to right at the very beginning of our chat, which is, you know, you get that immediacy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he does, and he does criticize Monty when you know there's some, some times in in Normandy where he's Montgomery is so. So rude. It's just yeah. embarrassing yeah. about how scathing he is and rude yeah. and and yeah. just sort of not minding his manners and, yeah, and just yeah. saying sort of crass things. Yeah. You can't help but sort of cringe. Yeah, and you get that then. And I'm I'm sort of a bit suspicious of the two autobiographies because I kind of think you know. Well, you have to be. You have to be, don't you? Of course you do. Yeah. But I think I think the the Chet Hansen insight onto onto. Bradley, which was recorded day by day, I think is probably yeah, yeah. your yeah. your most accurate picture. Yeah, yeah. But he's a likable yeah. chap, isn't he, Bradley? You can't. You I can't I, re- I, I like him, although I, I I do find I do find that sort of he's a bit headmastery. Um, he could be cussed as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very interesting. You know, dirt poor. Um, scholarship into West Point. The other guy yes. that's supposed to take the take the place doesn't take the place, so he's nominated. He goes to West Point, and then he's in that class. The stars fell upon, you know, 1915 class, which has got, mm. which is him and Ike. I mean, yeah. that's the other thing is when you look at you, I mean, you get this with the British staff college as well. When you look at who's in class together and who teaches each other, you think, oh, right, that explains everything. <laughs> 
Yes. You, you know, yes. I mean, the yes, class... it was the Imperial General St- Staff College um, of sort of 1926 or 24 yeah. or something. Yeah. You know, and it's Alexander and. Well, and there's the, the, the there's the two Monty, that incidentally. well, and there's the two that you know the class that Brooke taught, and then the class that Monty taught, That's and right. it's all it's just all you know. If you want to know where Bucknell comes from or wherever, you know, it's all it's all it's all that. It's really really interesting, and and you know, and I I sort of and also totally human, isn't it? Of course, that's yeah. how it works. Mm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, should we take a quick break and then we'll come back? Because you've got um, U-boat tales or American U-boat tales. Oh, yeah. Tales. Just, yeah, I've been doing a little bit on this. It's, it's been fantastic. Okay. All right. Um, we'll see you in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk uh, with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And uh, right, I was I wanted to talk about the Battle of Breville as well, but we'll save that for another time because well, um, let's do that next week. Yeah, because because of the family story at the weekend, there was a guy who was in Thirteenth Lancashire Parish. Well, let's do that. Then. Let's talk about that, and we can talk about about. No, no, no. Let's week. talk about let's talk about these American because right. you're you're busting to talk about these American U-boats. Come on. <laughs> well, it's just. I was sort of, you know, it was some, I don't know, sometime last year, didn't it? We did it. We did a talk. We were like, can you believe how many Japanese yes. troops were killed by US submarines? Why well, don't we army. know about this? Is it, is it a whole army? 197,000 troops. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a huge, it's like 14 divisions yeah. um, worth of, of troops up by US submarines. And kind of, you know, it's like, why do we only know about wolf packs and, and U-boats? And why don't we know any more about US submarines? And the more you start sort of scraping away at this, the more you realise that, that the war in the Pacific, I mean, what, one of the key ingredients to the American victory in the mm. Pacific was their submarine fleet, 
which yeah. was just phenomenally successful. Slow to begin with in 1942, 1943, you know, plagued yeah. by these problems with these these torpedoes, a Mark tor- uh, 14 torpedo didn't work. running low. Yeah, which was just a basic mistake from the Ordnance Department. And it's yeah. not till Admiral Lockwood in the summer of 1943 really starts to look into it himself, takes it upon himself. He's the he is the, the comm sub pack, which obviously means commander submarine specific. Yeah. Based at Pearl Harbor. Yeah. He takes it upon himself to right. OK, I've had enough of this. I'm, I'm sick of the Ordnance Department. I'm going to sort this out. And the, and the, the net result is. Yes, they absolutely were running low, so they they adjust that. And the second thing is the kind of sort of the um is the is the fuse, the explosion yeah. um, device. So they sort that out, and the product of that is the Mark eighteen. And out of that comes, you know, absolutely phenomenal nominal success at the end of nineteen forty three and into nineteen forty four. But while I was sort of reading around about this and reading my massive book, oh, yeah, um, yeah, submarine yeah, yeah. operations, yeah, yeah. my outsized book, which is for for a book that looks so impenetrable, it's actually incredibly well written and and, right. and really entertainingly written. And also, I've been looking at um uh, Ian uh, Ian Toll's book, his in the third in his trilogy. Yeah, and just sort of really into it. There's these two submarines, like there always are, aren't there? It's like sort of Gunter Preen with the U-boats, yeah. or I don't know, uh, or, or or Wanklin on the Upholder or yeah. whatever. There's always some that just kind of just come out and sort of smack you in the face with with. The, the outrageousness of, of what they do and the kind of larger than lifeness yeah. of the commanders. So I've come across this this submarine, which is a Gato class sub. Yeah. The interesting thing about the Gato class, the American submarines, is that they just seem a bit better than the sevens and right. of, of the, the, the U boats have. Yeah. So they can do they can do eleven thousand nautical miles, which is a huge amount. Wow. Um twenty one knots on the surface, which is, you know, that sort of so that's a kind of quarter again faster than a Mark, yeah. Mark Seven U boat, and it's pretty nine submerged, isn't it? Yeah, because you know I think submerged a, a, a Mark Seven could do like three or four miles an hour. Yeah, um, not much more than that. So nine is quite good submerged, um, and twenty one is is swift. Yeah. So they're you know pretty good. They've they've got a three inch gun on the fore deck. They've got a you know twenty millimeter kind of Erlikon as well. Mm. They're pretty well armed. Anyway, one of the great characters is this guy called um, uh, is called Captain Dudley Mushmouth Morton, and he's the commander of the Wahoo, and yeah. he's a he's from Kentucky, and he's loud and brash uh, and and aggressive. And under him, his his XO, his executive officer, his, his second in command, is a chap called Dick O'Kane. And Dick O'Kane is. Sort of a, a bit more kind of reserved, not quite so in your face, but they're an amazing double act. Yeah, absolutely incredible double act. And Morton, who is um, a lifelong naval guy, so he's he's been sort of ploughing the world's seas in the Pacific in the 1930s, and is now this sort of ace become becoming this ace submarine commander. He's operating in in 1943, so with yeah. the Dud the Dud torpedoes, which makes what he subsequently then achieves even more remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and he's also utterly ruthless. But what he decides is is that actually the best way to do to, to destroy ships is to do it on the surface. Yeah. Be on the surface and at night, which is, you know, I guess fairly obvious, and that's pretty much yeah. what the U-boats do as well yeah. in the Atlantic. Um, but he also decides that that he's going to create his his XO, Dick O'Kane, is going to be the co-approach officer. Right. And so the two of them are going to do control the sub when they're attacking. 
So O'Kane is his job is to be on the periscope, which is traditionally yeah. the skipper's job. Yeah. Looking through the crosshairs. Yeah. Relaying back his own estimates. Yeah. While Morton is sat beside him, reading all the data that's coming in from the kind of primitive computers and ASDICs and okay. and all the rest of it. And then together with that with the information that O'Kane is passing back to him from visually and yeah. his own computing from the data yeah. he's been given by his, you know, other people, um, radio operators and all the rest of it, and ASDIC operators, he then makes a decision about when to attack and at what range and all the rest of it. How so, has he come how's he come to doing it that way? Well, we his know. point is that it means that he otherwise he's got too much information that he's trying to process at the same time. He, yeah. he he's he's trying to concentrate on what he's seeing and absorb the and information. And listen that's to being, what he's being told, yeah, yeah. Whereas this way, he can just listen to what he's being told. He doesn't have to look at anything. Yeah. And and as you will know, you know, when you're looking at something, that is your focus. It's the point that you can almost not hear other things that are going yeah. on because you're looking at it. Yeah. So yeah. that takes out that. And it, suddenly he becomes much, much more successful. Um, Gosh, and um, <laughs> anyway, Lockwood and, and the, the Navy's press people decide that the silent service has kind of not had enough flag waving and has not had enough kind of press on it. So yeah. it decides that they're going to be their poster boys. Yeah. So they arrive back from their kind of third patrol on the 3rd of February, 1943, into Pearl Harbor. And at the foredeck, they've got a reverse broom stuck in the foredeck yeah. attached to the periscope. There's a big, long banner go saying, shoot the sons of bitches. <laughs> and they come and there's a band on the side of the, you know, of the pier at kind of, you know, at the submarine base. And... <laughs> Uh, uh, and they all get out and, and kind of Morton swaggers out and all the press are allowed, all the newsmen are allowed on board, which is, you know, it's normally a top secret thing. You're not allowed in yeah. the submarine. And they all go in there and Morton's kind of sort of giving it all the all, all the kind of lip and, yeah. you know, suddenly he's like the number one guy. And it's a bit it's a bit like the, um, you know, the Germans kind of sort of bigging up their, their aces yeah. and stuff. Yeah. You know, you have to be careful what you do because that's great while he's alive, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What happens when he comes a cropper? Anyway, he doesn't come a cropper for, for well, he doesn't come a cropper immediately, and, <laughs> and uh, they then go off and they, they and and I suppose sort of you get the sense that kind of sort of boosted by the sudden celebrity and by his own self confidence, he he says a lot. Can, can can you let me go into the kind of South China Sea and the Yellow yeah. Sea? Yeah. which is sort of between Korea and China and is kind yeah. of you know, and Asia and it's sort of just off the coast of coast yeah. of, of of Japan and it's this sort of big bulbous kind of sea that sort of hangs between the main part of well it's actually I suppose it's more like Vietnam isn't it and, and the Korean Peninsula mm. and Lockwood goes yeah all right go for it so they go in there uh, on the on the uh, on the fourth their fourth patrol and really really start sinking huge numbers really i mean they managed to sink nine on that patrol even when a third of their torpedoes are duds god and morton's thing is that if he if he sinks a ship and they're getting into lifeboats he then runs over the lifeboats and shoots them all up and kills them oh right oh, okay because he doesn't want anyone knowing about them doesn't want to yeah. know that they're there so yeah. he just he just wants them to just disappear in the middle of the night yeah yeah so he doesn't want any survivors yeah and that's his thing, you know. He's 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 absolutely brutal. So he comes back having sunk sunk nine, and then on the fifth patrol he gets another 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 three. Okay. And at this point, 
O'Kane leaves. Right. So it's a bit like Tubby Crawford leaving the upholder. Yeah. In the nick of time and getting yep. promoted. This is what yep. happens to Dick O'Kane. And he's been given a new Baleo class sub, which is known as a Tang. Yeah. So he's out of action for the next work because he's kind of training up and working yeah. up and doing sea exercises and all that kind of stuff. So they set out. So Wahoo sets out for sale on its sixth patrol um, on the 21st of July. Uh, and this time they're heading for the Sea of Japan. Right. And between the Korean Peninsula and the Sea of uh, and Japan, the southern islands of Japan, it's it's a series of very, very narrow straits. Yeah. But it's not the narrow straits that really, that, that is an issue. But what's really the issue is the depth of the sea there. Yep. Which is incredibly low. So the problem is, is that if you get spotted, yeah, you're in big trouble because you can't yeah. do a deep dive. Yeah, yeah. So you obviously need to try and sort of get through at, at, at night as, as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Anyway, they, they they get through and and they're absolutely plagued. But having got taken these huge risks to get into the Sea of Japan, then plagued with even more duds and everything. He's, Morton Mush Morton is going absolutely ballistic about this. Hurries back on the way back, sinks a sampan, takes on board six prisoners, right, rather than killing them all, takes them back, um, and, and apparently they all get on incredibly well, chatting <laughs> away to these Japanese prisoners and the Japanese yeah. prisoners pitch in with the menial jobs on board and all the rest of it. And they get back to Pearl Harbor. And this time they're given um, 80, they're marked the new Mark 18 torpedoes. Right. Torpex in the end, you know, create a massive bang, all the rest of it. Yeah. And off they go for their seventh patrol on the 10th of September. Yeah. And just as they're leaving, he's doing this interview with the press, which Morton is. Yeah. And he suddenly taps on the shoulder and goes, you know, boss, it's time to go. We've got to, we've got to slip out at one. And so he looks at his watch and goes, oh, look, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to cut this short. I've got to, yeah. I've got to head out on patrol. Tell you what, when I get back to Pearl, you know, after this patrol, let's continue this conversation. Yeah. So off they, they set off. And on the 5th of October, they sink an 8,000-ton troop ship, killing 544. So that's 500, you know, that's 500 of your 197,000. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they sink three more in the week. And then they they pass out through the La Perouse Strait on the 11th of October. Yeah. They're, that That is going back out of the Sea of Japan. Yeah. Back into the sort of clear South Pacific. Yeah. And that's the point when they, they just suddenly disappear. Right. And no one knows what happens to them. And subsequently, after the war, it's discovered that, that you know, because what happens is that suddenly there's, you lose all radio contact. There's nothing. Yeah, 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 you, you, you don't, you don't you know what's anymore, yeah. yeah. So no one knows whatever happened to them, but they were never, ever seen them again. The whole crew went down. Right. All fifty-four men and six officers, or whatever it was, yeah, and 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 that was that. And there were probably there was reports of a Japanese um, of, of of a seaplane sinking uh, sinking a submarine with depth charges, and that right. was probably it. And a huge oil slick was seen. The problem is, of course, is that it's only one hundred and thirty foot depth yeah. there, or something. So it's yeah. absolutely nothing. Yeah. Anyway, the wreck was found in two thousand and six. Really? Yeah. And if you go on to onto the internet and Google wreck of Wahoo. There it is. Really? And it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, there it is anyway. So you can see all the pictures of it, wow. you know, on this sort of beautiful aquamarine sea and there's the bows and wow. Amazing. But there's one point where, they, so, so they, he keeps having these refits. Yeah. Um, um, and, but, and, before I think he goes out on his maybe his his, 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 his fifth patrol or sixth patrol, I can't remember which one it is. They get a four inch gun put on the, 
on the on the front, as well as a thirty right. millimeter cannon and right. a twenty millimeter. They've got the twenty millimeter Erlikon, but they've also got a thirty millimeter. No, they've got yeah. a thirty millimeter Erlikon and a twenty millimeter Bofors, right? And a four inch gun. And there's one God. point where they blast this ship to pieces, and the planking on the front, on the Ford deck of the thing starts to be ripped up from the recoil really? of this four inch gun. <laughs> it's just a bit too big for the Gato class. Overcooked it. My God, they slightly overcooked it. Yeah, but amazing oh, story. So, so that's the end of that's the end of Mush Morton, um, which is a sort of tragic story. But, but at the time of the sinking, he is the most successful U.S. submarine, both in terms of tonnage sunk and in terms of number of ships. There was absolutely how, no one. I mean, no how, one to touch him. how 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 many um, uh, submarines do the Americans lose? How successful are the Japanese submarine countermeasures. I mean, not very by the sound of it. No, not very. They do have lots of uh, countermeasures. They, you know, they have radar and ASDIC and, you know, and all the rest of it and weapons and, 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 yeah. and so on and so forth. The problem they've got is, is that, that by 1944, suddenly the US submarines are so much more effective, which is yeah. why Wahoo and, and Mush Morton in 1943, when there are fewer numbers, the yeah. Japanese aren't as defeated, their torpedoes yeah. aren't effective. Why why Mush Morton is so completely exceptional and a pioneer yeah. in terms of submarine tactics, particularly yeah. Yeah. because all this stuff is being fed back. You know, it's a bit, it's a, like all these things that, you know, the, it's a very tight community. So you go back yeah. to Pearl Harbor, you know, know absolutely everybody, you know, all the other commanders, Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it's much more um, with a smaller force, it's much more easier to kind of sort of disseminate yeah. what you're learning than it is massive armies spread across continents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a real, real pioneer. Um, but by 1944, of course, you know, the Japanese are kind of stretched in absolutely every which way. You know, they haven't got enough fuel, they haven't got, the, you know, everything. The noose is absolutely tightening in around them. All their supply lines are being uh, are, are being are being cut. Yeah. Every single, you know, everything from, from your kind of oil being brought up from and coal being brought up from Borneo yeah. to, you know, to, to absolutely everything. Well, and you've um, spread your and you've spread yourself thin, which and you spread yourself so thin before, because of you know, the scattered all over. Expanse of, yeah, right, yeah, yeah all all, the, all those things. So, but it is Tang who kind of takes over and ultimately overtakes Wahoo, and and Tang, of course, is the um, Baleo class submarine commanded yeah. by Dick O'Kane, who was right. Mushmorton's um, executive XO, officer. Yeah, 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 for the first few few. Um, and and he is another kind of very very aggressive um, commander and just unbelievably successful. Yeah. Sinks five ships on his first patrol, um, only cut short to go and rescue some sailors, which he does U.S. sailors. Yeah. So he gets kind of massive brownie points for that. Into the East China Sea on the third and fourth patrols, and on the twenty fourth of June, nineteen forty four, near Nagasaki, mm-hmm. he sinks four ships with a six torpedo spread. With a combined tonnage of sixteen thousand tons, and this this is the single most lethal salvo of the entire war. God, yeah, God, yeah. So what happens is he thinks he's only hit two, but actually they've got the other two have got yeah. a bit wide and sunk yeah. another two. That is amazing. So out of the six salvo, four hit their targets. It's absolutely amazing. God Almighty! And then, and then on a subsequent, a subsequent um, patrol in in the autumn of or the fall of nineteen forty four. So on the twenty third of October, they're attacked by they're attacking some ships, and the two ships come towards him. Yeah, 
And, and he managed to squeak through between the two of them, and they both collide and sink. I mean, it's just absolutely nerves of, of steel, because, again, it's yeah. a surface tack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the following day, he fires a torpedo, and it circles back and hits him. Yeah, yes, he's sunk by his own torpedo, isn't he? He's sunk by his own torpedo. Yeah. Um, and only 10 of the crew survive, of which O'Kane is one, and he does actually manage to survive captivity. But I, I just thought, I don't know, just a, two great stories. I mean... That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Absolutely I, amazing. And and I just, I, I find it so interesting. And, and I've actually been searching around for a couple of memoirs and stuff, and I've I, I found them. They, you know, they absolutely do exist. Um, and I've just ordered up a book called Submarine! Exclamation yeah. mark. Exclamation. Has it got an exclamation mark? Exclamation mark, yeah. yeah. Which the I think, you know, I think as well. <laughs> but I think in that submarine, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so many similarities. Mm. between, you know, the characters of, you know, Teddy Suren, for example, one of the great legendary U-boat commanders. Yeah. You know, and again, another kind of sort of larger-than-life character. You, you, you know, you can it, see that, that that submarine arm has its own special, unique really kind of fellowship, sh- doesn't it? But it really shows, doesn't it, though, how um, how effective a weapon it is and how, yes. and, and how um, vulnerable, really, you are to submarine warfare and how... Uh, you know, good submarines, you know, because they've got to be a good bit of kit as well. Good submarines well handled. You can pretty much bring the other side to its knees, especially, yes. especially, you know, after all, Germany is never is never brought to its knees by submarines because it's not a maritime power. You know, but yeah. if, if you're if you're dealing with an opponent that um, I, I mean, I, I you know, the more you think about you more the, you think about the Japanese war effort, how thin spread it is. It's like. It's like the, the British trying to run a war with, you know, against, against another. Because after all, the Americans are a maritime power, so that, that's where that's where the that's where the actual collision is occurring. It's between two yeah. two maritime, maritime powers, isn't it? In a way that the in a way that the Battle of the Atlantic isn't that at all. So the Germans aren't really a maritime power. All they've got is the U-boat thing. And that's all they need to do as well. But it's yeah. as if the British. It's as if the British were defending. You know, Florida, and um, yes. you, 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 you know what I mean, yeah, and uh, and the Falklands, and you know, uh, and having to tr- having to ship yeah. to there and backwards and forwards against and against Georgia, against well, against the Americans. You know that, yeah. that if it if it were two naval powers, then you'd you'd go all you'd go all out for submarines, wouldn't you? Because that's actually where where you can really hurt the other side. And I think it's really interesting as well that the you know that. that I mean, we talked about this before, and there are no, and there are evacuating troop ships that are sunk, like the Lancastria. But the, mm. there are none of the none of the troop ships bringing men from the US are sunk, are they? No, because they're really, really that they're huge and they're fast, and they can do you know twenty five, thirty knots, um, which is faster than a submarine, and they've got incredibly good intelligence, and they've spent a huge amount of 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 um, R and D, research and development on making yeah. you know on anti-submarine warfare yeah. which the japanese do but they don't do to the same extent and a lot of these boats that the you know people like morton and okay are sinking yeah. and are not yeah. sufficiently escorted yeah because those destroyers and and frigate equivalents you know they're needed at the battle of Leyte gulf or they're needed you know somewhere else yeah. in the pacific because of this huge expanse they just can't be absolutely everywhere and they just don't have enough of anything they don't have enough fuel they don't have enough yeah etc 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 and so when you reach that tipping point where where you can no longer cope with with the huge extent of your empire and and the huge demands upon it, 
it all comes tumbling down incredibly quickly. And this is why you have this situation with Japan in the middle of, you know, June 1944. Its empire has never been bigger because yeah. it's like just after Ichigo in uh, Operation Ichigo in China, which has given it a huge more swathe of land. Yeah. So although it's absolutely finished and on its knees, geographically, when you look at it, the empire is as big as it's ever been. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but actually, the whole house of cards is about to kind of completely tumble because it just is completely unsustainable. Yeah. And that 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 moment is, of course, never, ever reached in the Battle of the Atlantic. And, and it just shows absolutely what submarines can do when they're well employed. I mean, the US submarines are better than the, apart from the Mark 21, are much better than the, the German submarines. Yeah. You know, they're... It's not. It's not that there's more of them. They're just better, and the German and the, and the Japanese defense is not as good. You yeah. know, but but crikey, I mean, what an amazing impact it has. Yeah, the submarine arm, and it is incredible that it is still the silent service, and it is the part of the. You know, the Pacific War is murky. I think particularly for people in this country, but I think it's still pretty murky. Apart from you know the big highlight highlights, you know Guadalcanal, Midway, yeah. Iwo Jima, Okinawa. Those, those are the kind of biggies, aren't they? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Everything else, it's all a bit kind of murky. Where does it all fit together? What happens when? When was Saipan? When was Tarawa? When was kind of Battle of Leyte Gulf? You know, most people haven't got a clue. And the yeah. And out of all that, the bit that people know the least about, I would say, is the incredible performance by the US Navy's submarine force, which is yeah. just phenomenal. And, yeah. and it is, and it's really weird because submarines are, you know, they are quite cool. And, and you know, there's these amazing characters and, the, yeah, you know, Jim, it's, it's, diving it's un- between two ships which are about to collide and but you know, you know as well as I do, and- But you know as well as I do what the problem is with submarine warfare. It's ungallant. It's, um... Do you think... It's skulking in the, you know, it's, it's skulking in the dark. But we've all been ungen- quite obsessed un- with wolf packs, haven't we? It's ungentlemanly. You think that's what it is? I think, I think in the end, that's what it is. Oh, and you know, of course, we're obsessed with wolf packs because because it fits with the Germans being dastardly. Whereas, yeah, you know, I we suppose just, so. Whereas the, the, you know, the Americans and we were talking about the, you know, GI democratic, you know, blah blah blah, right at the start of this podcast image of America and its participation in the war rather than, you know, hard-nosed geopolitical conscript army, you know, using it as an opportunity to overthrow the British Empire, blah, blah, blah. You know, if you want to go, if you want to go that way, you can, can't you? Yeah. We, but we, we don't like to, we don't like to look at it like that, do we? Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Well, I don't know. I just felt it was a massive, massive, it's been a huge hole in my knowledge. Mm. And I'm really, I've just found it so incredibly fascinating. Mm. Well, good. Well, we'll, We'll talk about the Battle of Breville next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll definitely get on to that. Oh, we'll God, give that the, proper attention. The, the blow-by-blow account from 1972, this um, Drop Zone Normandy, is really, really amazing. What happens drop to Lord Normandy? Because it's, what, it's what's happened what's to What's it called, Lord... Drop Zone Normandy? I'll get that. Drop Zone Normandy by Napier Crookenden, who was the brigade major in the air landing um, uh, brigade. Kindersley's uh, six air Napier Crookenden is his name, which sounds made up. Uh, Lord Lovett, because it's what, because it's after all, it's what then happens to Lord Lovett is going in to watch the attack on Braveville with with uh, Brigadier Kindersley, and mm. they're both they're they're shelled at their O group, probably because yeah. they've maybe they've got a big wireless raid a- a- aerial sticking up and they've drawn attention to themselves. They're both injured. They're, they're um, Lovett instructs his chaplain to give um, Kindersley the last rites. Kindersley wow. says, no, thanks, actually, I'm a Protestant. I don't want the last rites. I'm not a Catholic. 
and anyway, I'm not dead. Yeah. <laughs> so so they get put they get they get they get put on a jeep, um, uh, sent to the regimental aid post. The surgeon there says, "I can't do it because Kindersley's legs really badly mangled." He goes, "I can't do this. If you want me to save your leg, don't let don't give this to me to do. I'm too hard pressed." So they're driven to the beach to, yeah. to sword and left there on a jeep just. The driver buggers off, leaves them there, and and Lovett Lovett is uh, a, you know the story is that Lovett's going get me to an American hospital. They're more likely to have penicillin. <laughs> so that's how that's how Lord Lovett exits the Normandy battle. So because wow. after all, so much of we concentrate so much on what happens with those two brigades on D Day, Special wow. Service Brigade and six six and then six Airborne Division, and the battle that follows doesn't get talked about very much. And the, the the airborne guys like to say that the Battle of Breville is the most important battle of the Normandy lodgment, of course, because because if you control Breville, you can see down and over to sword. Anyway, that's for next time. Well, I've got to say, I, I'm up at the talking of Paris, up at the yard at the at the weekend. Um, I saw my mate Kev, and Kev said, "Oh, I've got this old old." Jacket, wartime jacket. This paratrooper gave it to me. I can't remember what his name was, but anyway, he gave it to me, and it's just hung up there for ages. And he hands over this Denison smock. It's 1954, yeah. so it's the Colonel's era. Yes, it's wonderful. You know, this is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Anyway, it's absolutely covered in oil and, and sort of muck and yeah. grime. It's sort of, yeah. it's sort of stiff with grime. So I thought, okay, well, you know, it looks it, it looks like a really nice original piece, so this will be great. I'll put it in the wash. So I put it on a... <laughs> literally disintegrated oh no yeah i've I've just bought on ebay a repro (sighs) yeah to try and patch it up with so i'm going to try and get it get it patched up but because you know you know it's just too good to kind of well on the subject of patching up on thursday we have the first of what may be a lengthy series of podcasts yes of our attempt to restore a second world war lloyd carrier there you go that was a link wasn't it yeah kind of kind of foolhardy venture men of a certain age undertake i told my nephew about this the weekend he was like what I said, I told him we bought a tank. I stretched things a little. And a reminder. <laughs> a tankette. You, a tankette. You can get That's tickets cool. for Warfest Spy, our summer festival of tanks, talks, and tankards. Um, go to wehavewayspod.com <laughs> slash festival. That's it for today. Uh, for today. Um, thanks very much for listening. We'll see you all again soon. Bye for now. Cheerio.